Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another installment of For What It's Worth. I am broadcasting today from a very wet Costa Mesa, California. Uh, we've been getting more moisture this winter than any winter in a long time, probably the last, last 10 years, which bodes well for the West and the Southwest because of this uh, weather system or these weather systems are moving across and dumping snow and rain, and man, do we need it because it's been dry over the last uh, decade. So I've got a little bit different format today. I've come up with a couple of things that I want to continue. Uh, these will be series that we will talk about every time I do one of these. And uh, the first one is I was reading a book by uh, Edward Wilson, Edward O. Wilson. I'm just going to call him Ed. I don't know Ed at all, never have. Didn't actually know about him, which I'm a little embarrassed about. He's an author and scientist. He's probably written 30 books, right? And somehow I'd managed to miss him. I am reading a book of his called The Origins of Creativity, which is pretty scientific. It's pretty meaty. It's a very slow read, but it's fascinating, especially if you have any interest in the, in the creative aspects of being human. It's a great thing. Now, he's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, and he's written, let's see here, he wrote books called The Social Conquest of Earth, The Meaning of Human Existence, Letters to a Young Scientist, etc. Again, double Pulitzer winner, which is no laughing matter. That's a pretty pretty good deal. But it, one of the things he writes about in the book is this concept of a hero and how that concept has changed so dramatically over the years. And today's heroes are really, if you look at them in many cases, are the least hero-like people you could possibly find. Billionaires, tech startup people, um, athletes, you know, who are perpetually getting into trouble. And I, and I was like, that is a weird concept. Like we are worshiping a very strange group of people these days. So I'm starting something that at the, at the beginning of every one of these podcasts, I'm going to talk about a hero and someone from, it could be any, any field out there, or it could just be a civilian who's done something interesting. And today I'm going to start with Ed Wilson himself. I think uh, if you don't know this guy and you do a little research on him, it's pretty remarkable the things that he has not only written about, but what he dedicated his life to. It's really crazy in a good way. So today's hero is Edward O. Wilson. I'm going to call him Ed, maybe Eddie. I have a feeling if Eddie would drive him crazy, so maybe I'll retract that one. But Edward O. Wilson, check him out. Okay, the second point of today's podcast is I lied to everyone inadvertently. So over the past 10 years of working for Blurb, I have seen the arrival and explosion of social media, right? And this started with Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and a variety of other networks. Some, have, some are still here, some have come and gone. And Instagram being what I will call the tip of the spear. That seems to be the perfect delivery mechanism for the dopamine uh, junkies out there. And I'm not sure that anybody has figured out a way to, to do this better than what Instagram has done. But I've, I've, I've had a reoccurring experience over the last 10 years, which is people coming and saying, well, you know, it's weird. I, I've got all these followers on Instagram, and I tried to sell a book, and um, not a single person reached out. You know, wow, I got a lot of likes, but, like, nobody bought anything. Now, I look at this one of two ways. One, we're selling way more junk than we should be trying to sell, and most people on Instagram are trying to sell something, right? And so people are buying whatever. Last year, $240 billion worth of needless goods, basically, which mostly end up in the landfill. So a part of me is like, well, you know, maybe it's not good enough to sell. But the other part is I've been telling people for 10 years, social likes mean hardly nothing. You know, I'm hardly anything. They just don't mean much. And if you had an email newsletter, 
that's what I've seen work. And the the tricky thing is that the the super hip folks look at email newsletters and they go, oh, that's old. That's the old school. That's the old way of doing things. That doesn't work. But all I can tell you is some of the most successful people I've ever seen on social media were the ones telling me what was very successful for them, which was far more successful, was their email newsletter. And so I've been preaching to people who have a legitimate need, cause, book, project, whatever, if I like them and I think that they have a legitimate standing to put this thing, whatever it is, into the world, they should look at doing an email newsletter. And so I realized I've never done one. You know, I should put my money where my mouth is. So over the last few weeks and since the last time I did this uh, podcast, I said, hey, I'm going to do a newsletter. And so I started researching. I got MailChimp. I downloaded a few other people who I heard about and looked at their newsletters. And there's some really great newsletters out there. There's a photographer in Santa Fe who sent me one. Uh, and it's unbelievable. I think it's 40 pages long. And, you, and I'm like, wow. And it's beautifully designed, perfectly written. It's great. And then another guy up in, I believe he's in Canada, maybe BC. And his is just written. It's just copy. But it's really good. He's a great writer. And he's got a huge uh, newsletter following. I think it's like 35,000 people. That is a powerful, powerful thing, people. Way more than 35,000 likes or followers on Instagram. Please, it's not even in the same conversation. So I lied because I told you I was going to do a newsletter, and I'm not going to do a newsletter, and here's why. So one of the things I noticed with the people who were very successful in their newsletters is they're, they're all still trying to sell something, right? Some of them are very subtle about it, and others just come right out and say it. You know, this is what I'm trying to do. And the problem I have is at the current moment in my life, I am not trying to sell anything. If you look at a book of mine, great. If you buy it, I don't care. I'm not trying to sell books. I'm not promoting myself as a photographer. So I'm not selling you a workshop. I'm not selling actions. I'm not selling equipment. I'm not selling anything. So when I looked at doing a newsletter and I mocked up three or four different newsletters, one of them was about analog photography, and I thought, okay, I'll just do that every month. I'll do analog photography. But then I mocked up the newsletter, and I just looked at it and said, this should be a blog post on Shifter. There's no re Why would I do a newsletter with this when I can just post it? And what I realized going back through all the newsletter people was that most of them or many of them, a significant portion, didn't really have a website. They didn't even have a, a website that was flushed out more than like just basically covering the bases. So a photographer might have a great newsletter, but when I looked at their website, it was just a photography website. You know, there, there was no like narrative there. There was no communication with an audience there. It was just, hey, this is my work. Check me out kind of thing. And so I realized Shifter, thanks to Fleming and Charlene in part for sure, uh, Shifter is a really good site. And the problem I have in life, I have a lot of problems in life. And if you're listening, you probably, you don't need me to tell you that. But I am interested in a lot of different things. I'm interested in math, science, truth, fact, exploration, exercise, adventure, photography, creative stuff, writing. I mean, it's, I have too much going on in my head all the time. And I want to put this stuff out. So I look at the website and I think, well, if I did a newsletter, what the hell could I possibly do? And the thing is, again, I just don't have anything to sell you. Now, this might change. If something changes in my life and Shifter goes from 5% of my life to 75% of my life and I need to figure out a way to monetize Shifter, maybe I'll do a newsletter. Because then at, the, at some point, or if I get involved with a different cause or a different organization, Blurb doesn't need me to promote 
them via my newsletter. That makes no sense. Blurb has millions of people in the Blurb ecosystem, so I'm, I'm a small, small fry. I might be strategic in that system, but other than that, they don't need me to, to promote. So as of today, I'm going to just leave Shifter alone. And at some point, maybe I'll do a newsletter, but I lied in terms of doing one now. Sorry about that. Okay, moving on. We've got a bunch of weird, weird topics this week. The first one, obviously, we're going to do heroes. Um, the second thing I thought about using as a reoccurring theme here are statistics, which I love. I love statistics. And again, we've become so politicized in America that you, statistics, you know, people are like, well, I just don't believe that. You know, the sky's blue and this is the shade of blue. Oh, no, that's not what I believe. So anyway, I love statistics. And if you're still a statistics believer, um, here's a couple of things I'm going to lay on you. And this goes back to something I just mentioned in this last point, which is about wasteful stuff. So last year we bought $240 billion worth of luxury goods, and that is double what we bought in 2002. Double. And by the way, the population only increased by 13%. So we are the explosion of consumerism is something the planet simply cannot survive. And I think these statistics came from the Atlantic, by the way. So if you hate the Atlantic, you can, of course, discredit all of these and come up with your own statistics. Um, I don't know why they would lie about this stuff, but apparently people are pretty suspicious these days. Um, the other, the couple, two more stats I want to lay on you from the same theme. One is the online shopping spree. And it's easy. I'm guilty. I use Amazon to buy stuff. Uh, nine out of ten returns on Amazon don't get returned because people are just too lazy to do it. They just go, ah, it's, it didn't cost me that much. It's cheap, so I'm going to keep it and then ultimately throw away. We, we throw away 81 pounds of textiles per person per year. That's just insane. That's 66 outfits. And that is uh, staggering. I mean, I'll give you an example. A friend called me the other day and said, hey, I've got this exclusive at a clothing company. Not an exclusive, but I've got a special agreement with a clothing company. Do you need something? And I said, no. And then I kind of, for a second, I felt bad because it felt like I said it too quickly. And then I explained myself and I said, look, I'm trying to keep a very small set of clothing. And then when they wear out, only when they wear out, will I buy something new? And that was the point. He called me from a clothing company that I really like, but I don't need anything because I bought this stuff from a company called Golight probably eight or nine years ago. And if Eric and Ian are listening, this is the clothes that I wore in Western Australia that I tried to get for you guys when I came back. But the company... I thought went out of business. They, they didn't go out of business. They just changed their model of what they make. But I went to an outlet mall. I stumbled into an outlet mall in Southern California, and there was this shop called Golight. I'd never heard of them. I walked in, and I swear it had been, they'd had a huge going out of business sale or changing model sale, and there were only like six items of clothing left in the entire building. All six fit me, and all six were things I wanted. And I just like cleaned up. I just walked in and basically went, I'll take everything in here. And it was weird stuff. I mean, there's a waterproof jacket. There's a waterproof green corduroy sport coat, which I still have and love. All these short sleeve, long sleeve wool shirts, they don't wear out. I've worn them thousands of times. I've sweat through them. I sweat through the black short sleeve wool shirt again yesterday, and I was hanging it up, and it, it, it doesn't smell because it's wool. And I was like, when will you die? I mean, it's like the cyborg of clothing. Anyway, I don't want to buy anything new because I don't need anything new until that stuff wears out kind of thing. So anyway, my point is we got to be careful about what we're doing here. Um, and the last thing is 26 million tons of plastic end up in the landfill from us alone. And that's just 
mind-boggling because it don't go away. Know what I mean? It just doesn't decompose. So, and they found shrimp in the bottom of the Marianas Trench that had plastic in their system. So, uh, you know, I think there's some warning signs on the horizon. Okay, moving on. First point, hero Ed Wilson. Second point, I lied about the newsletter. Third point, let's hit some statistics. I'm going to try to do this every week. Um, the fourth point, now we're shifting, major shift. And for those of you who don't like to talk about politics, um, just bear with me for a second. I hardly ever talk about politics. I think about politics from time to time, but I hardly ever talk about it because I think as Americans, we've completely and utterly lost our mind and our bearing and just any sort of foot. We've lost our footing in reality, right? We're just fabricating narratives as we move along now. And this applies to everyone. I detest both of our political parties almost equally. Um, and the reason I do is because I do not know how it is humanly possible to look at the American political system and not see a massive amount of corruption. And again, across both parties, it's across independents, it's across, that is just how the system works now. You can throw in things like dark money, and if you, if you have an understanding of what that is, and you go back to decisions like the 2012 decision about giving corporations the same rights as a human being, that's where things began to really unravel with campaign finance and the fraud and, and really just the, the deception. And let's face it, we know now without a shadow of a doubt that not only has dark money compromised our political candidates, it's also compromised our judicial system. They've got judges. And just to give you in a nutshell, um, and, and I've pieced this together over the last week by looking at a variety of different sources. In a nutshell, you have giant corporations with a lot of money and a political agenda. And so they can't go to a uh, – it's very, very uh, tricky for them to go to a candidate and say, here's a check for $20 million because then people are going to go, wait, why are you giving that guy $20 million? So they give them to these CPAC orgs, right, which then it becomes like a shell game. And the CPACs basically working with the, collab with the, the corporations determine which candidates they want in office. And then they offer these packages where it's like, hey, we will do everything you need. We'll do your marketing, your social, your attack ads, your television, everything. We will control it. We will get you in office. And so these politicians go, man, I want to get in office. And they do. So now they're compromised. And so right before the campaigns go down, the CPACs put all this attack media in. And it's basically just 100% fabricated lies. But it's so close to the election, there's no time to combat or argue what it is. And if you're not an intelligent voter or you haven't educated yourself and you get these things in the mail, you'd be like, oh, wow, this person you know, hates kids or this person hates uh, baby seals and you know, I can't vote for them. And so there's, and they're, they're funded by these mystery organizations that continue to change names like all the time. It's such and such organization and then two weeks later the name changes, but it's all the same address and the same company. So when these candidates win in an office, what it does is it eliminates the need for any of these corporations to lobby because they already own the candidate. So now the candidate is just a vehicle for the corporation. This is happening all over the United States. And by the way, like I said, they didn't just compromise the candidates. They compromised judges. And I'm talking not judges at like low level, which I'm sure they have, but we're talking significantly placed state Supreme Court people kind of thing. It's a really terrifying thing that's happening. And again, if we don't educate ourselves and move on, it's going to continue to happen. And hell, for all I know, it might continue anyway. But the political thing that I want to talk about is AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm talking about her for a very specific reason. I don't remember a candidate, especially a young candidate, that has inspired more hatred 
than this woman. I mean, it is unbelievable the venom that is coming out about this woman. Now, the Republicans are doing something really smart. They're doing something intelligent, which is they've immediately labeled her socialist, right? And socialist, and Americans don't typically and know what that definition is of socialism, so they just look and they go, well, that's, I, I think that's bad. And it's smart because that's the depth at which most people are going to put their thought towards political processes. Like, you know, most people in America are embedded with one party or the other, regardless of what that party does and says. That's just the way we, what we've become. So Republicans hate her. One, because she's Democratic. Two, because she's proposing all these uh, programs that are probably nearly impossible to pull off, but they strike at the heart of what Republicans detest. But the interesting part is, I'm not surprised by that at all. That makes total sense. The Republicans and Democrats, all they do is fight. Uh, what's surprising to me, at least to 1%, but I knew this would happen, is the, the, the attacks from the Democrats. And when she first got elected, I said to my wife, I go, she's going to get cannibalized by the Democrats. She doesn't have to worry about the Republicans. The Democrats are going to go after her full force, and it's going to be public, and it's going to be private, and they're going to chip away at her foundation all day long. And the reason is, here's the reason. The Democrats are equally guilty of playing the game, the political game, right? It's a game. And Chuck Schumer said something about AOC when she first came in, something really condescending, like, this girl doesn't know how to play the game yet. And Feinstein's gone after her and Nancy Pelosi and Schumer and a lot of other Democrats. And the reason is, is that she is upsetting the apple cart. She is shining a light into things that they do not want known. Because if you're a Democrat at that, at that level, you're compromised because you're part of the political game. You have to be compromised to get into the office in the first place. You've got to, quote unquote, negotiate. So she's coming in and saying, hmm, okay, let's go. Let's, these are congressional hearings. Let's get into the dark money thing. And let's shine a light. And everyone's like, ho, 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 relax. And you've, what's happened over the past few months is you've heard all of these really condescending remarks about things like little girl or this, quote, little woman doesn't know. Now, I'm going to equate this. I'm going to bring this conversation back down here, and I'm going to equate it to a Chris Farley movie that I just saw. Now, if you don't know Chris Farley, I don't know what rock you've been living under, but he was a national treasure comedian, fat guy in a little suit. Um, I love Chris Farley. And I caught like five minutes of a movie the other day called Black Sheep. And there was a moment in the movie, this was made in the 90s. There was a moment in the movie that was cringeworthy because of, it was a white character kind of talking to a Latino character. I think it was a Latino character. And it was just this racial thing that would not go down in a movie today, I don't think. And, and they didn't, obviously, you know, they didn't, wasn't the intention of the filmmakers to do this, but it was just a, ton, you know, it's looking back at the 90s and going, wow, we did a lot of stuff that today you would never be able to do or get away with. And I was like, oh, cringeworthy. That's how I feel when I see these politicians making these comments about her of like, oh, this, like, I think someone in the Democratic Party said, like, this little woman doesn't know how to play the game yet. And when I heard that, I was like, that, in a nutshell, is, describes our entire political system. It's a game, and you have to play it. It's like the art world. So, you know, is the art world based 100% on the merits of the work? No, not even remotely close. It's based probably a higher percentage on completely un things unrelated to the work. Who's the artist? Who, what's their lineage? Who's their gallerist? Uh, what museum shows are they in? All these different things. And much of it doesn't have anything to do with the work. So... I, I think AOC is wonderful simply based on the fact that she is 
illuminating things that our political system does not want illuminated. The hard part for her, and I think she, again, is going to get destroyed by her own party and obviously by the Republicans, but I think what she is going to suffer from is the same thing that Edward Snowden suffered from, which was his primary concern, which was an unconcerned American public. And so, you know, Snowden was like, look, an apathetic public is really the problem for me because if I release this and the public goes, yeah, well, you know, whatever. Yeah, people do bad things. And then that's it. So AOC is going to be in for a long and rocky road, but um, I'm glad that she's around. Okay, next, moving on, totally unrelated topic now. Topic five, four, five, whatever we're on, I'm not counting, is about photo agencies and one in particular, but I just want to give you a little history here. If you don't know about photo agencies, these are groups of photographers, management, etc. Some are co uh, cooperatives, others aren't. And uh, probably the most uh, notorious infamous or significant, depending on how you look at it, is Magnum, Magnum Photos. Many people know Magnum. Even members of the public have heard that before, which tells you they've been around for a while and also they've got a certain significance. And um, you've also got uh, smaller agencies like Seven and Noor, which is based in Amsterdam, I believe. These are really interesting groups of photographers. This, In terms of like journalism, photojournalism, storytelling, visual uh, multimedia and stuff, these are the top agencies in the world. These are some of the best photographers. They're doing the best work. They have the best networks of delivery, et cetera, et cetera. It is a battle for these people to stay alive, sadly. That's just the way it is. It's never been easy to keep an agency alive, but these are some of the people that are doing it. When I was coming up, there were agencies like JB Pictures, Matrix, Saba. Those are all gone. And what happened is back in the 90s, there were two huge agencies that came along, Corbis and Getty. And apparently, I don't know this, I've never had a conversation with either of these people or these groups, but apparently Bill Gates and Mark Getty did not like each other. And they were very competitive, and they're, they're, they had basically started an arms race, which was to, to consume, the world's, consume and own the world's supply of photography. So they started buying up archives, both from individual photographers and organizations. And we're talking massive archives. And they also started buying agencies. And people sold because they were throwing around ridiculous amounts of money. Uh, that, in the long run, really destroyed the stock photography industry because you suddenly had two entities who controlled massive portions of the industry with small portions of the actual global supply. And we're still feeling the effects of that now. But when I first moved to California, I moved to Laguna Beach, 1996. And one of the first people I met at a place called Heidelberg Coffee Shop at Brook Street and Coast Highway, I met a guy named Scott McKiernan. And Scott, I remember, the first thing I remember about Scott, which makes no sense at all, but it's the first thing I remember, is he had a Motorola flip phone, which was the coolest phone in history at the time. I didn't even have a phone. I didn't even know why anyone would need a cell phone. But there it was. And Scott had the extra battery, the fat battery. And I was like, holy shit, this guy is a mover and a shaker. So anyway, Scott had this agency called Zuma, which was located right above the coffee shop. And I believe his dog had a black lab named Zuma, and I think that's where the name originates from. Um, I have not seen or talked or seen Scott in years, probably 10 years. But recently, I was looking at some migrant caravan photographs, and I noticed a tagline from Zuma, and I was like, no way. People, the idea that this agency is still around, and it looks, after taking a quick look at their website and what they're doing, it looks like they're doing really well. This is unbelievable. It's like a testament. Scott is a machine, so he's a photographer and an agency owner. 
And I think Zuma's model is slightly different than some of these other models that have, you know, a very tiny group of photographers. Zuma, I think, has more people under their umbrella, and they're also doing different kinds of work. But if you don't know about Zuma, check out their website and check out some of, the, like, the Z Reportage magazines and things that they're doing. And Scott's one of these guys that has said since I've known him, which is 20-some years now, He's always said, like, look, there's really great stories that are not going to get published, but we should be publishing them anyway. And that's kind of what he's doing with these Z reportage magazines and stuff. So if you don't know about Zuma, check it out. If you don't know about the history of these agencies, uh, you should check them out as well because uh, they are they're, they're almost like, you know, we're shifting from a, a one age to another, the Paleolithic to the Mesozoic or whatever we want to call it, of the agency world because, sadly, many of these are, are going away because it's just – Things are changing. Wow, it's absolutely pouring here in Costa Mesa. Again, it's painful in the short term because everything floods. But ultimately, we need this water. So I'm just going to try to ignore it and move on to my last point, which is hopefully one of the most interesting ones, and I saved it for last, just to agonize the rest of you to have to sit through this. I have a new project. I've mentioned it here before, but I just want to flush it out a little bit. But the first thing I have to say is I can't tell you what I'm photographing. And there's a reason for that. So I'm photographing something that is very much a niche. Uh, and like most other niches, there are a group of photographers who photograph this niche on a regular basis. And in fact, they are some of the most driven, possessed, crazy photographers I've ever seen. And it's not like the world is clamoring for this, these images, but they are obsessed by doing it. Now, I am not in that group, and this group is very territorial about what it is they photograph. So I don't want to rain on their parade. I don't want to invite a bunch of people that they don't want out there. So I'm not going to tell you what I'm photographing. However, what I will tell you is there's no point in me photographing the same thing that they're photographing. That's never been my intention, right? The goal for me as a photographer from day one has always been I need to work long enough and hard enough and smart enough to figure out who I am as a photographer. If someone is photographing the Indy 500, and I'm sure that there are thousands of people photographing the Indy 500, what am I going to add to the conversation that makes it different? So I know for a fact nobody in the world, not a single other human being in the world, has my point of view on this particular project. I am combining not only the one thing that these other people are photographing, I've added two more visual elements and a third, uh, another element that's written that will be completely different than anything that anybody else in the world has ever done. And then I will package it in a book that is created and designed unlike any other book that anyone in the world has ever done. I can, I'm 100% positive that that's true. So that's the basis. Anytime I do a project, that is the foundation. That is the basis. I don't ever look at anybody else's work and think, oh, I'm going to go do that, and then go to that same location and shoot the same story with the same pictures. And the reason I'm saying I don't do that is it's incredulous to me that I have to explain that. But one thing that happened with the, in, in the advent of the internet, and especially with social media, is I've run into a fair number of young photographers who not only don't think that copying someone else's work is a strange or forbidden thing to do, I've run into a lot of young photographers that think that's just how you operate as a photographer. I mean, I've run into people that I've said, you know, why do you do this kind of work? And they said, well, I went online and I saw so-and-so did it and I just went out and bought the same cameras. I went to the same location at the same time and I shot the same stuff. I was in contact with a young kid who was driving around copying other people's work all over the country and didn't think for a second that that was strange. So that is the polar opposite of how I look at doing photography and doing projects. So let me, that's the first step. The second step is there is no end game for me. 
I don't care if anyone knows of me as a photographer. I don't care if anyone sees my project. I have no intention of selling the project. I have no grand goal other than to experience making the work and having the fortitude to edit, sequence, design, print, and encapsulate what it is I am trying to say and try to keep the most unique perspective throughout. And that, that's my goal. So again, I don't care. It's never going to show up on Instagram. I'm never going to promote this and tell you, oh, this is something you should look at or buy. I just do it because I love to do it. I am losing money the entire time of doing this project. And it's for all law enforcement out there. There's a really peculiar experience that happens with law enforcement when you're approached as a photographer, especially doing documentary projects in the field, especially in remote areas, is what are you doing here? Oh, I'm doing this project. Well, who are you doing it for? Nobody. I'm doing it for myself. Well, who's paying you to do it? No one. I'm actually losing money. Well, that doesn't make sense. You have to leave. This has happened to me over and over and over again. It's happened more and more and more in the last 10 years where there's, if there's no money involved, no fame involved, no you know, exposure involved, for whatever reason, law enforcement just goes, nope, that doesn't compute. We're running the numbers. Nope, that doesn't make sense. Nope, you, you can't do that. No, you're losing money. There's no end game for you. No, that doesn't make sense. We don't trust you. Get out of here. That's happened over and over and over again. So luckily in this place, I'm not having too much law enforcement uh, activity, which is good. Okay, so the idea, again, is to three visual components, one written component combined and then designed in a very peculiar way to equal a book that will force the viewer into viewing through a modifier of sorts. That's all I'll tell you right now. That's all, the, that's all that matters. So the style, uh, let's, let's talk about the third point of this. The first was the idea. The second was sort of the, the, the pieces that I'm joining together. The third is I'm shooting it with a digital camera. And why is that? So I went out the first shoot with both film and digital. Now, if I had my druthers, I'd always shoot film. I just make better work with film for whatever reason. I'd shoot the like in the Hasselblad. The problem was that is the worst possible equipment for this particular shoot. The best possible equipment I have is my Fuji gear. And in fact, I went out and bought a 50 to 140 long lens and a 2X converter. And the only reason I bought that lens is this project in particular. That's the only reason. Now, over the past couple of days, I've had, a, I've had an epiphany about what my future might entail in the world. And this lens might come in handy more than, more than I imagined. However, that's another long and separate story for another, another uh, podcast. So I'm using the 50 to 400 a lot. I use the, the 23, the 35, and the 85. That's in my backpack. I have an Atlas pack that I, that I love because it's like a mountaineering pack. It's really a pack that carries like a mountaineering pack, not a camera bag. So when I'm hiking up in the middle of nowhere, this pack feels like a great backpack. And the whole back section that fits near my back is my camera gear and my audio equipment and my GoPro and all that crap that packs in there. And then the front half of the bag is just a giant top loader. So it has all my food, all my rain gear, all my cold weather stuff, my, uh, and anything else I can jam in there. It has my radio, it has extra batteries. It's pretty heavy by the time all is said and done, but the pack system, the actual harnessing and how it carries, which is what interested me in Atlas in the first place, carries like a mountaineering pack, not a camera bag. Okay, so the timeline, let's talk about that. Fourth part is timeline, no idea. I'm not in a rush. It'll take at least another year to do this project, probably more. Uh, the writing part, I could get off this podcast and start writing today, but man, writing something like this, which is unlike anything I've ever written, is so challenging for me, and it encompasses my entire bandwidth, right? I can't devote, basically devote 20% of my bandwidth and write. I need 
90% of my bandwidth. And that's rare that I get those sort of blocks. And so I'm stymied a little bit on the writing. The photography is going well on one of the three components. The other two components, I'm way behind. So there's a human element I'm way behind on, and there's a natural element I'm way behind on. And so part of that is based on timing. There's not a lot of natural elements that I'm looking for during the winter. I have to wait till spring, summer, and, and fall. So anyway, I've got a lot on um, a lot on my plate. And lastly, what I'll say about this is, no, not lastly, second to last, is I'm not sharing the work. Uh, I don't like doing that when I'm working on an official project. And I don't think you should either. I think all these people who are sharing ad nauseum their projects as they go, I equate that to crying wolf all day long, every day. You cannot put crap on Instagram and expect me to look at it all day long, every day, and then expect me at the end of the project to come back and say, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen 900 of these photographs. Uh, okay, so now you want me to pay attention to the project? It doesn't work. I hate that. I would never do that. I always tell, I met a guy on this shoot last week. I went out on, and shot one day. I met a guy out there. He's uh, even crazier than I am. And he, we were talking about social, and he's like, without me saying anything, he goes, man, I feel like I'm at wit's end. I got to delete all this stuff. It's making me miserable. I don't like it. There's so much fighting and negativity and awfulness. And I, got to, and I said, dude, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Delete it. And uh, we were talking about uh, sharing stuff. And, uh, and now, of course, I completely lost my train of thought about this guy. He was amazing. He was one of the most amazing resources I've ever found. And, uh, and we were talking about sharing stuff on, on Instagram and how people go, you know, backstab and fight and hate and all that stuff. And I was like, man, just delete it. So, again, apparently completely lost my train of thought here, which won't be the first or the last time I do this. Um, so I am not going to share it until it's finished. And then I will share the book, not probably the individual photographs. And here's the other thing. The last thing I'll say on this, and probably the last thing on today's podcast, is I will make test after test after test after test book from this. Now, the um, reason I'm saying that is I routinely run into people, and I've mentioned this before, uh, and I actually think I had an entire point about this, which was people will spend years and years and years trying to get great as a photographer and then sit down without having any bookmaking experience and, and demand that they make a perfect book. And then they get their book back, and, they, and it's terrible, and they blame me or they blame Blurb. This happens all the time. It doesn't work that way. Bookmaking is a very refined skill, and it's one that requires patience and practice and education. And if you don't put it in, you're never going to make a good book. That's just the way it is. So I, after all these books and all these years of making my own screwy little projects, I still make test books all the time. Now, yesterday I got an email from someone who will remain nameless, and it was a very positive, exciting email, and they said, hey, I just got a book deal. I said, oh, that's amazing. And he said, yeah, I did six iterations of the book through Blurb over the past couple of years. And when I finally got to the sixth one, I thought, this looks pretty good. And so he took it to a publisher, and the publisher said, not only are we going to print this, not only do we think this is a great project, but your book design is right on the money. We're not even going to change anything. The only thing we're going to change is the trim size. We're going to slightly alter the trim size. But everything else remains the same. And he's like, hey, base, the, the publisher actually mentioned the reason they loved it was the Blurb book, was the sample of the Blurb book. Now, the best case scenario for Blurb, for Blurb would be for that same photographer, instead of going to a publisher to print it through Blurb's, Blurb's large order services, 
But the second best thing is for them to go to a publisher and get a book deal. You know, I mean, financially, for the photographer to use Blurb for the entire ecosystem, for the entire process, obviously, is financially the most rewarding for Blurb. But all we want is for people to have success with their books. And if that means going to a publisher, great. Man, go get your book done at a publisher. So that's exciting. Again, I'm not shopping this project to a publisher. I never will. When the project is done, I will make my grubby little book. I will look at it and be wildly entertained with my own amazing skills. And then I will laugh and put it away. And I'll move on like a locust to consume some other project. That's just the way... I work and roll. I don't. Uh, my days of being a photographer or being known or even attempting to be known are a decade in my past. So that, in a nutshell, is today's uh, for what it's worth. And again, we're gonna. I'm gonna hit you in a week or so with another episode that's gonna have a he- another hero, some some new statistics, and then hopefully a good mix of uh, creative stuff, book heads ups, and uh, and maybe even some photography stuff. So I'll give you updates on this project when I can. And uh, but you won't. You won't get the whole enchilada until this baby is done. So so cover your eyes, hold your ears, and open in a year from now, and then we can check back. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, I appreciate anyone who literally made it this far. I'm guessing it's probably just me. Uh, but for those of you out there who are doing this and, uh, and listening, I appreciate it. And uh, you can also chime in and tell me what you want to talk about or if there's a topic you think I might have some edu- uh, information on. Let me know. Thanks. Bye.